Hello. Before you hear from Rob and Stan, I'd just like you to know that Reimagining Cyber is now 100 episodes old. The show is now a regular in the Apple charts and is one of the most respected podcasts in the cybersecurity world. Now, Rob and Stan and our great guests can, of course, take much of the credit for this, but on behalf of them, I'd like to thank you for regularly downloading and sharing the podcast and giving us valuable feedback, all of which helps us make the show better and better. And if you're feeling generous and want to give us a present for such a landmark achievement, I suggest that you leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now on with the show. The silver lining to this cloud is that the folks at NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, um, have spent the last six years working with cryptographers basically around the planet on sort of a bring the, the Justice League together superheroes assemble kind of <laughs> kind right. of job to uh, say, hey, how do we how do we find algorithms that are not vulnerable to uh, to these kinds of attacks? Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategist, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, our guest today is Terrence Spees, the CTO of CyberS Voltage. Terrence is a veteran cryptographic engineer. He architected the original Microsoft Crypto API certificate server and is a founding member of the Voltage security capability and and product. In addition to building cryptographic systems, he's a co-inventor of format preserving encryption and has headed multiple standards groups. Terrence, is there anything else you'd like to add to your extensive background for our listeners? (laughs) I know uh, it's extensive. It's not so saying that you're old. I'm just saying that you have done a lot. Yeah, I've uh, I told people I've, I've stopped doing the subtraction for how many years I've been been fighting the crypto battle. It's uh, it's been interesting. Terrence, we wanted to bring you on to the podcast to delve into quantum computing's potential impact on our ability to protect data using encryption. Encrypted data, you know, appears as as you know, random collection of alphanumeric characters, and in general, encrypted algorithms are are vulnerable to brute force attacks given enough time and compute power. However, we seem to be doing well with the encryption algorithms we have today and and they're adequate against most attacks. Are crypt analytically relevant quantum computers or CRQCs a game changer? That's what we're hearing in the press, that's a potential game changer at least, and how we need to protect our data with encryption. Yeah, let me let me set just a, a little bit of context by by rewinding to one of the earlier things I said that you said that I think is uh, is is really relevant. The, the tragedy of security systems in general and, and cryptography specifically is that unlike other areas of computer science or other areas of of, of software that people might be buying, it's one of the things where you can't demonstrate the most important properties of those systems, right? Is you, the, the, like, I love what you said is like, you know, uh, encrypted data just looks like this, this bunch of gobbledygook. And the problem, and, and this is relevant to the discussion today, 
is that that well encrypted data and badly encrypted data looks exactly the same, right? You you can't there's there's no way to demonstrate to somebody that this cryptanalytic uh, algorithm is 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 actually strong because you're you're looking to demonstrate sort of a negative capability, right? If I come to you with a new graphics card or a new CPU or a new database sorting algorithm, I can demonstrate the things that you care about in terms of, hey, this is faster, this consumes less power, and the rest of it. The, the tricky business about cryptography is that what you're saying is I'm going to encrypt this data and there's a bunch of things that can't happen. Right in 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 a whole universe of possibilities, right? That there is there is no way to derive the key that's going to sort of unprotect or or decrypt this data. And what that means is that you need to be open to a whole universe of of possible attacks, sort of known known and unknown, right? Uh, and this is one of the things that makes it interesting and also I think difficult for uh, for people in the enterprise space which is that they're being asked to um, sort of bet part of their business or you know, bet, bet the security of their data on these statements, often uh, obscure and, uh, and, and subtle kinds of arguments about the, the strength of these protection mechanisms in a, in a way that can't be demonstrated. So the way that that fits into the, the discussion we're having today is that there is on the horizon, uh, potentially uh, a bunch of discontinuous change in the way that people think about computing, and that's that's quantum computers, right? So um, there have been lots of other discussions about how quantum computers uh, work and what they can do. But the, with relevance to the crypto space, there are there are two algorithms um, that change fundamentally the way that people can do searches in 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 two different spaces um, that affect the way that um, that people are going to have to protect data with uh, with cryptographic mechanisms. So if if there comes to be a practical quantum computer, that is to see something that could implement the AES algorithm or um, something that could uh, implement, uh, let's say, RSA or elliptic curve, things like that, is that enough, enough qubits to express those algorithms, then searches become quicker and not just quicker in a way where a, a, a traditional CPU gets faster or you use a GPU for, for more computers, it's uh, the, the algorithms move time from the exponent down to the bottom, which is to say it's, it's the difference between, you know, a bubble sort and a quick sort algorithm, which is, which is these, these differences are dramatic. Um, and for cryptography, that's especially big because you, you need these search spaces to be big in terms of the cryptographic algorithm has to be uh, efficient encrypting data for the person that's actually using it, but the search space that the for the attacker has to remain really, really big, <laughs> right? Because you're 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 relying on it now and in the future. So what's going on now and with people looking at what's called post-quantum cryptography algorithms is that they're saying, well, we have to start now. There are no there are no quantum computers right now that can even get close to expressing these algorithms or attacking them. But if we hypothesize that there's a real probability of this happening in, say, 20 or 30 years, we might have data now that is going to be, we want to keep private or we want to, we want to 
um, have some uh, expectation of, of security of that data in the next uh, 20 or 30 years. And also, historically, it has been uh, a slow and arduous process to migrate from one cryptographic algorithm to the other. So, you know, in, in the in the payment space, there are still people using triple DES, which is actually a fine algorithm, but um, that industry has been attempting to uh, to move from triple DES to AES for uh, for decades, and there's still some of this around. So, to that that was an awfully long winded <laughs> answer to your question. That's, that's fine. But, that's but the, fine. Uh, the 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 short answer is that that um, though the world is changing, and one of those changes that people are anticipating is that there is going to be this fundamentally new uh, kind of computer that's going to alter the way that we have to think about cryptography in terms of throwing away whole classes of algorithms that we use now. So, so Terence, think about. Um... The point you were just making as it relates to also kind of, I guess, the type of data. So as an example, when we think about um, whether it's transactional data or let's say legacy data, you have to hold on to it for many decades, as you kind of refer to as an example. Does, does it really make a difference as kind of the you know, specific type of information or any type of data as far as its resistance to CRQCs or not? Um, not really. So in terms of resistance to, to quantum cryptanalysis, it's fundamentally about the algorithm, not about the data. Where the type of the data becomes uh, relevant and interesting to think about is that um, you might have to start thinking about, do I have classes of data that the privacy of that data is gonna be relevant in uh, a couple of decades, right? So if you're talking about a credit card transaction, probably not. Um, if you're in the government space or you're protecting things that, um, that you might realistically have privacy impacts in, in a couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, moving now is probably the, the case, but also for data that, you know, outside of the data, the algorithmic thing is we, we know that moving those algorithms is going to be tough. So there's reasons to start thinking about it now in terms of doing, doing those migrations. Terrence, how do you characterize quantum attacks and what types of algorithms can mitigate against them? The quantum attacks fall into two categories, sort of the, the, the good news and the, the bad news <laughs> kinds of attacks. Um, so there, there are two algorithms that people care about uh, in the quantum space. And one of them is a generalized search algorithm. And what it means is that, and this is highly counterintuitive, is that for a quantum computer, if you want to give it the job of saying, find this item in a list of length n, if you think about that with a traditional computer, that's a job where on average, you're going to have to look at n over two items. So you're just going to basically march through the list. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? You know, down until you've completed the list. Quantum computer, because of the way that they're structured, there is a quantum algorithm that says, I can search that list in square root of n time. Now, that's a little mind-blowing, because what it means is I can search a list of size n without looking at all n things, without having to take n steps to do it. Um, but this algorithm uh, affects essentially almost anything where you're searching for a key, because searching for a key is equivalent to that searching through a list, right? Is it key number one? Is it key number two? Is it key number three? On down to, is it key number <laughs> two to the one twenty-eighth? That has a primary effect on symmetric key uh, cryptography because those key spaces are dense and they are essentially looking through lists, right? Which is to say uh, 128-bit AES, like all 
128 bit numbers are potential AES keys. So you have to you have to search that whole space. There's no structure that you can um, be be uh, skipping around in. The good news is that the, the square root of n limit within the current theory of quantum computation is, is a hard limit. Right? It's not going to get faster than that. And we know how to solve that problem because square root of n says, if I take, let's say, a 128-bit key, the square root of 2 to the 128 is 64. So we, we know the impact that a quantum computer is going to have there in terms of reducing the size of your key space by half. Now, luckily, some people at NSA and other parts of the federal government were farsighted enough when they designed the AES standard to say we should have AES-128. But hey, it's probably a good idea to have AES-256 because the consequence of having AES-256 is that this, this square root attack uh, takes AES-256 and puts it back to 120 bits of security. But nobody believes that 120 bits of security is insufficient for any particular job. So if you are in the position of using uh, AES-256, that attack vector is essentially closed off for quantum computers as we understand them now, right? and, and in a very, very general sense. Um, and that's an easy change for most people to make. The bad news is the other algorithm, which is Shor's algorithm, is about the fundamental problems of taking something called a discrete logarithm, which is very related to another cryptographic problem that people have typically heard about, which is factorization of a large number, right? So if I, if I take two primes, P and Q, I multiply them together, how hard is it to, for a very, very large number, N, um, find a P or Q from, from their multiplication? And this is where Shor's algorithm comes in. And Shor's algorithm uh, says that we can do these factorization or discrete logarithm problems, which are important for almost every key exchange algorithm we have right now. Um, and perform much, much more efficiently. So it's not a it's not a square root thing. It's a moving from a e to the n kind of problem to an a logarithmic in 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 that as opposed to an exponential. But what that means is that the that we can't make the key sizes big enough to make the attacker's job hard anymore. And the bad news there is that most systems, even if you use two hundred fifty six bit AES, you're at some point exchanging that key using, the key exchange algorithm that's in this other class of algorithms that's dependent on factorization or discrete logarithm in order to uh, maintain strength. And there, the job is not just moving to 256-bit AES, it is to find a new class of algorithms that are not vulnerable to quantum cryptanalysis. The silver lining to this cloud is that the folks at NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, um, have spent the last six years working with cryptographers basically around the planet on sort of uh, bring the, the Justice League together superheroes assemble kind of, uh, kind right. of job to uh, say, hey, how do, we, how do we find algorithms that are not vulnerable to, uh, to these kinds of attacks? Because things like elliptic curve, RSA, um, that we're using right now are fatally wounded in the quantum model to the point of like, you can't make a bigger key size it it just your the attackers' attacks are just too fast. And the, and the first set of these are, are slated to be released publicly, right? In twenty twenty four, is that right? I mean, they have they have some that they posted out there for yeah. There are they're actually so they had initially a they started this uh, a while ago. They had a number of candidates that have been whittled down. Um, the first 
accepted algorithms in the geekiest fashion possible. They're called uh, Crystal's Kyber and Crystal's Dilithium, um, thereby satisfying the Star Wars and the Star Trek uh, fan communities. I thought that was a wise decision on their part. Um, but these are a, a signature and key exchange algorithms uh, that use a different form of mathematics that's not dependent on factorization or discrete logs, um, instead uses these other uh, sets of lattice problems. But they use a, a form of, uh, of mathematics that are not amenable to quantum cryptanalysis. NIST has uh, essentially said these are the candidates that we're moving forward with in standardization. Uh, the NSA actually came out with, I think it was last month, a recommendation saying uh, defense agencies and other people outside of the commercial sector uh, should be moving in that direction also in terms of um, the, the crystals algorithms are the uh, should be the basis for for protecting data going forward. So uh, it's been a huge effort, but I, I can't say enough good things about the quiet, undercompensated, uh, underappreciated work that NIST does in terms of uh, sorting out the cryptographic world for people that have to use these kinds of algorithms. It does seem to be a bit of an arms race right now going on between kind of, you know, role supremacy, if you will, for kind of quantum computing, right? China's got some things going on, right? We in the US have seen that. Then the White House is coming out and saying, hey, we, we want to be able to have a formal plan of, you know, being able to actually migrate many of our systems and national security, obviously, as the umbrella over that uh, concerns to kind of these quantum um, resistant, if you will, type of yeah. cryptography, right? So, so if you think about that, they've kind of put it in an a stake on the ground that says by 2035, we want to be able to get to that point. I mean, yeah. What are your thoughts? Realistically, is that is that achievable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, people seem to be pretty motivated by this, and the fact that we have done a couple of changes right now in terms of moving from sort of the the, the DES based schemes to AES, um, there are some things that will be, I think, quite straightforward to change. So for communication security, the standard right now is TLS. And uh, the standard for the implementation of TLS are the, the open SSL libraries. I mean, there are some of uh, others of them out there, but the majority of the world has sort of coalesced in terms of this is how we do communication security. Um, and uh, the, these are the ways that we implement it using these libraries. One of the things that's happened over the past uh, decade is that people have realized that implementation of cryptographic algorithms and, and protocols is enormously tricky. You know, there have been this whole class of attacks around timing attacks and these sort of side effect things that happen when you don't have what's called constant time implementations of these algorithms. That is, that you can start in inferring keys on the basis of how long it took somebody to compute um, a particular cryptographic operation. Um, the world has come a long way in terms of fixing those problems by um, carefully implementing these algorithms, but it also means that people have sufficiently or close to sufficiently warned against implementing them themselves instead of using these uh, carefully vetted centralized kinds of uh, implementations like OpenSSL. So I think we have plenty of time for communication security for moving from today's algorithms to post-quantum algorithms simply by using OpenSSL in a way where you say, basically, I'm going to I'm going to use a different key exchange algorithm at some point uh, in the future. Um, and the OpenSSL guys have been keeping up with this. And um, I think the, the path there is uh, 
It's pretty great. There's a, there's a second class of attacks in terms of, again, if I have communications that I'm performing now, um, that I'm worried about uh, the, the security of a number of decades down the line, there's this other more uh, exotic form of attack in terms of, hey, maybe I as an attacker am recording that data uh, and I'm just going to store it away until the capabilities to break the crypto that uh, protect it come along sometime farther down the line. Um, I think the you know the number of people that have to particularly worry about that is somewhat small, but there are certainly those those organizations in the world, um, and uh, they may have to migrate uh, much more quickly or or come up with other mechanisms that are going to protect them in the face of these these sort of attacks uh, from from the future. So, in general, you're not an alarmist. You're seeing the the progress that NIST and the algorithms, the crystal algorithms are making, uh, you, you think there's enough time before a, a, a adversary could take advantage of um, a, a CRQC computing capability, and you know, to, to actually launch attacks in real time. In general, your guidance to folks is to monitor the situation, to start a plan to be transitioning over to these crystal algorithms. Um, and be a little more agile in your your systems, right? So I, I would say, for, for lots of mainstream use cases, um, yeah, the 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 path forward is exactly what we said. Basically, like use of these libraries, uh, monitoring the situation, making sure that you're not welding in dependence on particular algorithms, and having that sense of agility. Where, where I think there, there may be maybe threats at some point in the future is the same place that there are threats right now, which are systems that don't get updated. You know, for the computers that we use every day, that's fine. Where things get tricky are embedded systems, skated devices, um, things inside of vital parts of infrastructure that the software just sits there and kind of rots, right? And so, can be difficult to update. It, it, exactly. Yeah. So even and, and even outside of the, the the quantum attacks, which are more speculative, there are there are just concrete attacks that are going to occur on those kinds of computing systems until we find better ways of, as you said, being agile of of updating them. You know, even outside of algorithmic attacks, just in terms of other kinds of side channel and other kinds of attacks that are going to occur. Uh, I think as an industry, we need to be better about moving things forward. Um, and also just sort of examining assumptions that we have within the security community about how we do things. Yeah, and I think, I think you just hit it right there. It's, it's important to be able to adapt. Uh, these things are happening. They're moving rather quickly now. This again, we said kind of a, more of a sense of urgency, even on a national scale, right? An international scale. Uh, but I think it's just a very interesting topic for our audience to, to to understand kind of really what's happening in this space, a little bit of the history, but where we're going. Some perspective from you is in sharing that was was very helpful. So we really appreciate you coming on today, Terrence. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Terrence. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.